For thousands of years, caribou have roamed the mountain regions of what we now know as Canada. One migration route included the Rocky Mountains, up to the Yukon, and down across into southern Alberta. However, colonial practices disrupted their migration patterns. The Klinzizaw are just one herd of these mountain caribou. The population of the Klinzizaw caribou has been declining for years. In the 1990s, their population sat around 250. But in 2013, they declined further to a total of 38. This drastic decline doesn't only affect the environment. It affects the local indigenous population and their treaty rights. Treaty 8 guarantees the right to harvest caribou. But at these low numbers, the local nations cannot hunt without further endangering the population. Even with knowing these facts, no population recovery was attempted by the federal or provincial governments. This lack of action influenced the West Moberly First Nation and Soto First Nation to lead their own caribou recovery efforts. Between 2013 and 2021, this Indigenous-led conservation increased the population of the Klinzizaw caribou from 38 to a total of 101. I'm Julie Patton, and you're listening to the Canadian Mountain Podcast. This episode focuses on the Indigenous-led conservation of the Klinzizaw caribou. But before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to appreciate the land we work on and the people we work with. This podcast is produced across the ancestral Indigenous territories now referred to as Treaty 7. The Canadian Mountain Podcast acknowledges the land we work on as the home to the Nitsitapi, Iyahai Nakoda, Sutana, and Métis peoples. As journalists and media makers involved in Indigenous knowledge mobilization, the collective responsibility of our podcast is to strengthen our relationship with Indigenous peoples through storytelling and partnerships. this episode of the Canadian Mountain Podcast, I spoke with two people who share a passion for the growth of the caribou population. These two work together, among others, to repopulate the Klinzizaw caribou herd. Our first guest is Chief Roland Wilson, Chief of the West Moberly First Nation. I'm Roland Wilson. Good morning. Uh, chief of the West Moberly First Nations. I have been elected chief there for the past 22 years. I was first elected in uh, 2000. Uh, we're a small Dunizaw Creek community located in northeastern BC, the west end of Moberly Lake. The Dunizaw people have been the, the indigenous people of northeastern BC for 13,000 years, uh, time immemorial, I guess you could say. Our ancestors hunted the bison and the mammoth that walked in the valley here. We have had a connection to the land forever. We're a nation that consists of 360 members. We were small nomadic family groups that would travel the land, hunt the animals uh, through what they call now a, a traditional seasonal round. We would move the seasons and follow the animals back and forth in small family groups. In the last 100 years, 120 years, we've we accepted treaty. This is Treaty 8 territory, and uh, we've uh, accepted treaty and, and taken up permanent residence on the west end of Moberly Lake, and have been there far back as anybody can remember. It was uh, an area that we would uh, have constant, I guess, settlement in. We are part of 
what was considered to be the Hudson's Hope Beaver Band back in 1914 when we adhered to treaty we would gather in Hudson's Hope us and the Halfway River First Nations or our sister community we were actually considered one community at, at one time. Our second guest is Clayton Lamb a wildlife scientist at Biodiversity Pathways. I'm Clayton Lamb. I'm a wildlife scientist at Biodiversity Pathways, which is a research institute out of University of British Columbia. And yeah, I work on wildlife-related science all across Western North America. I work on caribou with uh, Roland, West Moberly, and, and Soto First Nations. And I work on grizzly bears down here in Southeast British Columbia. And wolverine and elk and sheep and all kinds of different animals. Um, I'm located here in southeast BC, which is the homelands of the Tanaha peoples. The connection to the land for me is I, I mean, I was privileged to grow up in a, in an outdoor oriented household. I grew up hunting and, and fishing and spending lots of time out in uh, what is now called British Columbia. And you know, I grew a pretty deep uh, relationship with the animals and trying to understand, even through hunting, where they are and what they do and learning more about them. And I, that's basically what I do for a job. I met up virtually with Chief Roland and Clayton to discuss their research and the actions they've taken and continue to take to manage the population of the Klinziza caribou. So to provide a bit of context for those who are not familiar or don't know, can you tell us about the history of the Klinzi Zaw caribou herd? The Klinzi Zaw is a, a sub-herd of a larger group of caribou that used to migrate back and forth across the Peace River, going all the way up, I would say up into the Yukon, all the way down into southern southern Alberta along the Rocky Mountain Range. In 1968, BC uh, started a project called W.A.C. Bennett Dam, and they uh, started construction, and that created the Williston Reservoir, which is, the I think, the seventh largest reservoir. The creation of that fragmented the caribou migration pattern that moved back and forth. There was always, what we understand of the caribou, there was always groups of caribou that live through the area, and then there was a larger group that moved back and forth up and down uh, the mountain ranges. They would, as they would move through, they would repopulate uh, the local groups here. Uh, there was resident caribou and then the ones that moved back and forth. And uh, when they flooded the Wilson Reservoir, the, that fragmented that population. And it created a southern population and a northern population. And then uh, all the industrial development that happened since that time has fragmented them into the smaller groups. There was seven subgroups in the southeast. Uh, the Quincy Zaw is, is one of them. We had thought they were rather stable about 15 years ago, and then we found out that they were in stable as in the fact that we thought there was about 190 of them moving around. We weren't paying much attention to them because we thought they were healthy, and uh, one of the biologists that was studying them, uh, Dr. Scott McMay, came to us when uh, one afternoon and told us that uh, their recent telemetry count on the caribou identified that there was less than 19 of them that they could identify and something needed to happen. There's a much larger story as to how we got involved in the in 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 the caribou thing. It came from a different different piece. But um, the Quincy Zaw are a I guess a subgroup of a larger group that's 
remnants of a historic pattern of caribou that moved through the area. There was thousands of them at one time. Clean, do you have anything to add? I mean, when people talk about the history of Clinzizak uh, caribou, I, I mean, the only real history we have is from from West Moverly and, and Soto, uh, you know, any meaningful history. So I think Roland covered it pretty well from the Western science standpoint. The history doesn't go back very deep. I mean, the first counts were in the 90s of those caribou and the Clinziza herd was around kind of 200 or so animals. And I think that there's pretty good consensus that there was many more before that. So, you know, the Western science counts kind of came in at the, when the herds were already quite low and had declined for some time. And then the, you know, the counts basically followed them from 190 down to, like Roland said, like less than 19 in a portion of the Clinziza herd. And so that's, you know, that's kind of where the, the indigenous knowledge and then the science kind of meet is there's this long history of what happened to these caribou and then the kind of Western science and the Western data only really capture that last little tale of that decline. So there's not a, not a deep history on, on our end, on the kind of number side. We caught it a bit, a bit late, um, but luckily there's a bunch of information from West Moberly and Soto to kind of fill out what the history actually looked like. And so many Indigenous nations have strong connections with the caribou. I was wondering if you could explain to us why caribou are significant animal to the West Moberly First Nations and the Sotau First Nations. To the Dinizah people is, is they were a vital food source. There was uh, medicines involved with caribou. Like every aspect of the caribou was utilized uh, from the hides all the way to the bones of the animal, the antlers, you know, in springtime. Uh, when they were in their velvet, uh, the, there was there's a medicine in the velvet. If people were sick, they would harvest a caribou and process the the velvet off the outers and uh, use it. There's uh, medicine in the caribou itself, other than the velvet, that was used for different different things. The bones you could use the bones as tools. Uh, you could break them, sharpen them up. They were razor sharp. Sharpen them up. Uh, we we have a an image of one of our elders who's passed on now, uh, uh, Molly Desjardins, using a caribou bone to flesh out a hide, and that was one of the tools that was made out of the out of a leg of a caribou bone. You could sharpen it up so it was razor sharp, and you could pull the hide, uh, stretch the hide out, and scrape the hide down, uh, take the residual flesh off it, and the hair off, and stuff like that, using the caribou bone. That tool. Uh, one of our counselors, Robin Fuller, is a, she's a Desjardins family counselor, and she uh, used that tool this summer to teach her children how to stretch a hide and flesh a hide on. You know that and that tool probably a, close to a hundred years old uh, there. So you know they were they were a vital aspect of the Dinizal culture. You know they were always they were always here. Now now they're not. <laughs> Uh, could you tell me then how are Indigenous communities impacted by that without the caribou? The caribou, when they flooded the Wilson Reservoir and cut off the migration pattern, we noticed an immediate decline of caribou to the area. So we, the elders back then, passed what is called a traditional law that we were, we wouldn't hunt the caribou until they started to come back. We started to see more, more numbers of the caribou around. And being on the land all the time, people would, could see resident resident herds of caribou in the area and they could kind of get an idea if, if there's more or less. 
And uh, over the years, we were noticing that there was less and less and less of them. So uh, we just haven't. They flooded. I think they went to full pool in the Wilson Reservoir in 1969. And about 1974 is kind of when we, we decided that we weren't going to hunt them anymore because of that. And we were waiting for them to kind of recover. And they, they just never have recovered. Now we find out that Canada has identified, had identified them in the 80s as a species at risk. And then uh, they were put on the list. I'm not actually, I don't really know the full details of it, but we got involved when I explained that Dr. Scott Manake, well, actually we got involved before that. Uh, there was a, a mining company called First Coal, went out, sought a permit to develop a open pit coal mine in the Burnt Pine Range. That herd was identified under Sarah as a species at risk. They were threatened at that time, and uh, there was supposed to be a recovery plan in place. Now, we understood, we thought we understood that Canada and BC were putting together a recovery plan to start recovering the caribou in our area. Being that we are treated here, uh, we have treaty promises that are constitutionally protected rights, and our ability not to hunt the caribou is an infringement of our treaty. And because we can't hunt the caribou, we have to then rely more on the other animals, the moose, the deer, the elk, and that puts more pressure on them. And it's not just the First Nations, like nobody can hunt caribou. So everybody is focusing on more moose, more elk. So the pressures on them are even greater. In our way, we would, you know, we would hunt caribou when they're ready. Then we would leave them alone. We'd go and hunt moose and then leave them alone, go hunt elk. And, you know, that would give them time to recover. But because the caribou aren't recovering, all the other animals are being in, impacted now. So it's not just about caribou. It's about balance. And so can you explain to me then how you began this project specifically and then what personally drew you guys to this? When Canada deemed the caribou as endangered, that then superseded the treaty right to harvest them. So we've now become infringed, legally infringed. Uh, our treaty has been infringed with because we couldn't harvest caribou, it was an infringement, a legal infringement. They're not supposed to just ignore it. They're supposed to be doing whatever they can to get us out of it. And when BC announced that they were not going to recover caribou, that was an, an immediate signal to us that they walked away from their obligation to the treaty. Now, we used that in order to start recovering the caribou. You know, and, and when I explained that it, it was not just about the caribou, it was about the moose and the elk and all that, the infringement because the pressures on the moose we're seeing declines in moose numbers and populations of moose here as well so the caribou infringement is now spreading out they're supposed to we don't have a treaty with bc we have a treaty with canada bc is a a party i guess to the treaty because canada is the parent bc stated has stated many times that we don't have a treaty you have a treaty with canada if there's a problem, you need to go talk to Canada. But the problem is, is that it's BC that's making the decisions to do these things. We use the treaty to start identifying the issues with, with, uh, with not just caribou, but with everything else. But caribou was identified as the problem because of, of the state that they were in. 2005, they made the statement that BC is not going to recover caribou. The caribou recovery plan was supposed to be in 2000 supposed to be implemented in 2007 i believe 2008 we followed a judicial review started this whole caribou recovery process on that understood what's this what's the standing of all the caribou in northeastern bc 
the southern population of caribou, the seven herds in the south population, were at, uh, I believe, 425 caribou. And individual little herds, pop, little pockets of caribou, the Mobley herd. Uh, I think I mentioned it. There's 365 West Mobley members. Each one of us has a right to harvest caribou as a way of life. Now we'll get kind of into the project. Uh, Clayton, I was wondering if you could maybe explain some of the steps and actions that the research project took to recover caribou um, populations. I mean, kind of picking up where we're rolling left off there with about 36 or 38 caribou in, in the Klanziza and thinking about what these caribou need is really a, a landscape that will work better for them. And in this case, what was really limiting them was predation. I mean, they were getting killed by wolves at a very high rate. And just like Roland said, it's not really the wolf's fault per se, it's just a wolf being a wolf, but the landscape was changed so dramatically that the balance was favoring these wolves and the wolves were too abundant and they were killing predator, killing caribou at rates that were not sustainable for these caribou. The goal was to basically help the adult female caribou survive better so that you know the few uh, moms that were in the herd could survive and keep producing caribou so they didn't go to zero and that the calves that those females had could survive because even if we could make every of those you know the i think there was 16 adult females or 11 or some a very small number even if we could allow them all to survive which they weren't doing very well because of the wolf predation but even if we let them survive that doesn't grow the population. That just keeps it at what it is. So what we also needed was to allow the calves to survive. And so there was basically two kind of emergency level actions that were taken. Um, the first one started in 2013, and it was to reduce the density of predators down to a level that was more uh, kind of naturally reflective of what caribou were able to live with. And that was, done in combination with West Moberly and Soto First Nations and the province began helping uh, later around 2015. And then in 2014, uh, the maternal pen came online and that was really uh, geared at again, looking to improve the survival of those adult females in the pen and importantly, their calves. So the predation rate on young calves is very very high in their first few weeks of life they're they're small they're not incredibly agile they're just getting their feet under them and they're just not strong yet and generally a caribou like kind of in natural environments would go to uh, a steep edge or somewhere that they can be safe from predators and have that calf and try to kind of raise it through that risky period and these were always areas that were pretty low predator densities but now with very few caribou and more predators the predators are able to still find those few last calves and so the maternal pen is designed to keep those caribou calves safe during that kind of really critical six-ish weeks when they're vulnerable to predation and that that initiative of the the pen really was led by Wes Moverly and Soto and with support from uh, scientists and from um, you know funding from different groups and it's pretty neat like I mean when we talk about the pen people think of a like a really fancy enclosure or like a zoo or something like that but it's it's nothing like that I mean it's 
it's where the caribou would want to be kind of naturally during that time of year and it's a it's a chunk of landscaping cloth like you know black geotextile just strung between trees and caribou are just kind of lovely animals i mean if, if you did this to a herd of bison or something it would be over in about 30 seconds they would run right through that cloth and you would no longer have bison in a pen but caribou they're they're pretty gentle creatures and they um they they keep pretty well in in the pen and there's uh there's west mobley and soto guardians on site 24 7 and so i mean we're standing here in in canada and it's minus 29 where i live and minus 39 where roland lives and there are guardians up at uh like 6,000 feet of elevation in the middle of march living with these caribou day and night there's a small shack beside them and they are responsible for the caribou's well-being they feed them they make sure they're happy and healthy and and doing well the enclosure is about 30 acres so you know they need some supplementary food but they also have all the things they need in there there's a little stream when this um, uh, when the snow melts for them there's lichen for them to eat there's shade there's you know cover from bugs and so they do a lot of natural foraging in the pen and then they're also supplemented with food the guardians are also important for protecting those caribou so kind of like when the roads get pushed up into the high elevation and the wolves have this smorgasbord obviously the pen could be that it's you know a bunch of caribou in a confined zone so there's some um, really effective electric fencing all around the pen which is maintained by the guardians and they check for predator tracks and then there's remote cameras up. And so we've never had a, a predator uh, ingress issue in the pen, but certainly had a number of them come up and look at the pen or be repelled by electric fence. So it's, you know, it's, it's a full-time job uh, looking after those caribou. The result of it is that the survival of those cows basically doubles or triples due to the maternal pen. It's really effective and that paired with the wolf reductions and we let those caribou out onto a safer landscape, uh, those caribou, they have higher survival and better recruitment of those calves. So that's sort of the, the quick summary of what was done, at least on the emergency response measures. There's a whole other thing about habitat restoration that is kind of coming online in a bigger way now, but that was sort of the 2013-2014 spark to get the population from heading to zero to uh, on a different trajectory. And so, Roland, I was wondering if you could add how Indigenous ways of knowing and land stewardship was utilized in developing this conservation project. So there's West Mobley First Nations and the Soto First Nations. The two uh, Soto First Nations live on the east end of the lake and we're on the west end of the lake. And there was two talks that were happening. Uh, there was the West Mobley talks uh, through the court system that we were doing. And then Soto had a structured... Uh, and the province structured a round table top and they had industry folks there and some government guys were there and they were they were talking about strategies and stuff for that two of us came together and and started coming up with a plan of of what to do our people have hunted the caribou since time immemorial so we know the habits we know the areas where they they live know what they need it just made sense the province flat out said no that we're not doing this we're not doing anything Scott, Dr. Scott McNay came in and asked, like, we, we have to do something. We said, well, what do we, what do we need to do in order to stop this? And we kind of started brainstorming on, on what's being done out there. And what we actually found out was that 
nobody is recovering caribou. You know, there's been some attempts to do it, but there's never there was never a success. Nothing that we could say, well, this is what this is what we need to do to make this successful, because nobody has ever successfully recovered caribou. We just went all out on it. Uh, I couldn't tell you what the magic thing is to do this. I think the one thing that would be the you know the wave of the wand was that we did everything. We didn't just do focus on one thing. We did everything. We did the maternal pen. We had our community members start a, a trapping program. We were trapping uh, caribou. Trapping wolves. Constantly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Tra- trapping wolves, not caribou. Uh, um, we were out constantly on the ground uh, looking at what industry is doing, what government is doing. Uh, government, you know, we, the one thing uh, Scott's, had mentioned was that uh, nobody has done a pen like problem is a baby caribou they're just a little tiny thing you know until they're uh, almost six months of age they ju- they're like a little deer they just if something comes around they just lay down and you know a wolf will just run up and eat it you know? and it so we had to we had to stop that and and the one way that we we knew that we could stop that was to keep the wolves out or keep predators. It wasn't just wolves, like predators. Uh, we we found out from conversations with north of us up Yukon, you know, uh, Northwest Territory stuff like that. Eagles eat baby caribou, coyotes, uh, wolverines, bears. You know, <laughs> a little caribou. You know, they get pretty tough for them. But just about everything wants to eat one of them, and they lay down. That's their defense mechanism. They hide in the grass or hide in the, in the bush, but it's not a very effective having thousands of caribou around they could recover from something like that but you know if you if you lose two or three caribou in a small population like that that's a pretty heavy hit to them so the idea was what's we got to stop things from eating them it was well let's pen them let's put them in a pen and see what happens you know and uh, the first year the province refused they weren't going to give us the permit to put the pen up scott was like i can't get a permit uh, i don't know what to do and, and we were sitting around thinking well this is this is treaty land we don't have to ask the province permission for anything we're going to put up a pen you tell us what to do we'll put the pen up and then if the province says anything we'll point to the treaty on this so we went into industry and we fundraised ourselves. We got enough money together to, to buy the materials. We went out under the guidance. And we had nobody to actually really talk to. Uh, I think uh, Smoky River guys tried in Alberta. There was the group down in Revelstoke that were had tried something. You know, so we took all that information, built the pen. You know, the first year we got some animals in it. First year it, it worked. Province said, you know, that was lucky. And so, Clayton, how did the settler research methods contribute and help with this project? I mean, I think the first thing to point out is, um, you know, it would have been viable, of course, without us uh, there. You know, the nations knew what what to do and what the issues were. But I think it's it also has been successful because of the team approach. You know, everybody kind of brings a unique bit to the table, even if it's something like government relations and knowing how to get permits or, you know, of course, treaty rights, a big piece of that. Um, If you can't get the permits, I think 
certainly where the Western science is playing a decent role right now is, is measuring the effectiveness of these Indigenous-led responses to this kind of emergency conservation uh, issue. And, you know, they're, in some ways we as scientists do a little bit of science of the obvious, you know, like we do create very robust estimates and data on something that you can fairly easily observe yourself. Like there are more caribou there. And Roland knows that if you hop up in a helicopter, you can look around and say, there's more caribou today than there was in 2013. But also as we spend millions of dollars and as we work on recovering a, uh, an endangered species, a federally listed endangered species and a, a species that's very culturally important, uh, you know, where we come in is trying to put some, some numbers to that and, and to make sure that uh, it is working, how it's working, and, you know, maybe even looking at how we could improve it and refine the, the approach to make it work better here and, and other places. So we have a, a data stream that involves uh, collaring caribou. So as, as Roland said, when we bring them into the pen, they get a, a radio collar and that helps us understand their survival. So we can uh, you know, find them at any time. We know if they're alive or dead and we kind of know where they go when we release them from the pen. Part of that helps us understand how the pen is working, right? And we have had to move the pen because we've been penning now for, for quite some time. It's 20, we'll be 2023 penning here in a couple months. And we, the first pen was in 2014. So it's been quite some time. And so the pen gets moved every once in a while to make sure that we don't accumulate disease or any kind of risk to those caribou in the pen. And also to make sure that there's fresh browse for those caribou because they do uh, naturally forage in the pen and they do deplete the lichen and things like that. And so that helps us understand the optimal location for a new pen, when we would move it. And, and as I say, measuring um, how effective the maternal penning is on increasing adult female survival, the survival of calves, and then kind of comparing um, maternal penning uh, versus wolf reductions and all the kind of things. So we can try to figure out how do we do this, this better. Maternal penning is kind of like the short-term solution. So could you touched a little bit on the long-term. Could you expand on that a little more? I don't know that the pen is a short-term thing. They look at the caribou as a number. They think that, well, okay, well, there's 36 caribou. They're out there. We're not catching all the caribou and putting them in a pen. We're just catching a small group. I think this year was our largest, largest group that we've had. I think we had 19 in the pen this year. And so there was more outside of the pen than there were in the pen. And they're, they're still being caribou outside the pen. They're still doing their thing. And they're having their calves outside the pen, and we're having calves inside the pen. And then at some point in time, they sit down, and they look at the numbers and say, well, there's, being, there's more calves being born outside than there are inside, so it's, it's becoming diminishing returns. You know, we should just not do the pen. We're recovering caribou because we want to have more caribou, but we also want to be able to harvest them again get back to our traditional way of life and the pen until we get to that state that we can sustainably harvest caribou the pen i believe has to has to stay there until that point in time um, because the caribou will never get to the stage on their own you know their their, their numbers are too low now and, and we are by no means out of the out of the woods on this one you know uh, they're a herd animal and they they wander around uh in in, in groups and you know one avalanche and get caught in a, a, a snow slide and 
wipe out half the population in one shot, right? Uh, at, at this stage, you know, we need to, we need to have significantly larger numbers before we start thinking about not having a pen. In what ways could this project of Indigenous-led conservation be used or replicated in different settings to increase caribou populations? Nobody else is doing what we're doing. You know, we went to uh, uh, the Car National Caribou Conference uh, in Ottawa a couple of years back. We were the only group there presenting on recovery of everybody around the world that came to that conference and were talking about all their studies. We were the only ones that were talking about recovery. And the only ones that had a success at that time had a successful program. Now I understand there's a couple more that are out there, but at that, I got mad at that, at that meeting and I was, I kind of bawled everybody out. Like you all standing around talking about the impacts and watching these animals disappear and you all got your hands in your pockets. Nobody's doing anything. Come up with a plan, get involved, get going. So I want to come back to this conference the next time I come back here and I want to hear how people are, what they're doing. I want to sit around and talk about this is what we did. It didn't work, but, you know, we did this and that worked. But I just want to echo something that uh, Roland brought up, which is really important, is that this sort of implementation gap that, like, we are at this point where we do a lot of science and, and meetings and thinking about problems. And we actually have done a pretty good job of identifying what some of the issues are to biodiversity or why we don't have wildlife or, you know, what kind of some of the main threats are, which at one point were kind of unknown or we didn't know why. Um, things were declining. Was it health or was it the landscape or what was going on? And a lot of good work kind of helped us identify that. But we do kind of have this implementation gap now where we have a, a whole library of what these animals need, but not a lot of on the ground implementation of that. And so, yeah, I mean, it's something I think about a lot and, and worry about a lot that like uh, there's some systems that are kind of set up to keep us busy doing the science or doing the meetings and doing the working groups and spending all your time and nobody's out pounding fence posts to keep you know caribou in a maternal pen or keeping animals safe on the ground we're kind of in our own little echo chambers and none of it's hitting the ground for wildlife and i think that's it's really really important and i and i i, I hope that the role of scientists or western scientists starts to pivot more towards you know, our, our lucky role here, which is kind of measuring the effectiveness of, of outcomes, like Roland said, like, just go try something and see if it works. And we'll create a whole body of knowledge on what, what works for conservation and it can kind of help propel action forward. And so, yeah, I, I just want to echo that's, that's really important. And that's really where we should be heading. That's, that's the future for, I think these kind of efforts and to then springboard off of that, how would we have more of these efforts? And I think, you know, Wes Moberly and, and, and Soto have created a recipe here and it's not a one size fits all necessarily. It's not prescriptive that other groups or other nations would need to follow it necessarily, but it's one way of doing it that obviously has worked for the nations and, and for caribou and, and partners that have come on board like the like industry and like environmental groups and, and the province and the federal government. And, you know, now today there's, you know, most of those groups are are at the table or supporting in some way. And, and the group of caribou has more than tripled. I mean, there are a lot more caribou today than there were. And the alternate future was basically none.
But the goal is to, when you do one day have that large population and there's harvest and things are looking good again, that you could kind of take your foot off the gas on, on these, these sort of more invasive or more intensive or expensive um, conservation measures and allow those caribou to be caribou up in, up in those mountains. And that will rely on healing that landscape to a point where it'll, it'll work for those caribou. And that really comes down to some level of habitat restoration. And so, you know, if we simplify it down to logging, for example, which is not the only issue but within the range that's one of the large disturbances and in Klinziza for example a large portion of the herd is now under some level of protection due to a landmark partnership agreement that Roland and his nation and Soto First Nation signed with BC and Canada. That covers everything I wanted to ask you guys. Um, Do you have any closing thoughts or takeaways you want to leave our listeners with? West Mobley and Soto's leadership on this has literally transformed the narrative around caribou conservation. Like Roland said, there was sort of bleak trajectories of these herds and things weren't working out very well. I mean, we had extirpation of the burnt pine herd right next door and things were just kind of spiraling. And I don't know, like, I mean, I, I don't know how close we, the sort of people, not me per se, but like, I don't know how close society was just throwing their hands up. Like, we can't do this anymore. You know, I think that this helps rewrite that narrative that clearly we can recover caribou and it also helps show us that, you know, it was what we thought it was, you know, this transformation of the landscape and too many predators because when you sort of isolate them from some of those impacts, especially predators, I mean, this endangered species has tripled in less than a decade and that is not the behavior of what you think of when you think of an endangered species. I wanted to add on to what uh, Clayton was was saying there. You know, like the the penning program, it was triage. You know, it was an immediate knee-jerk reaction to stop the arterial bleed of caribou disappearing in this one area. The long term of this is is the rehabilitation, re-establishment of habitat. You know, uh, reducing the linear corridors that are out there. You know, and that that's going to be a challenge because you know BC doesn't. They collect money to do that as part of the restoration fund that they they have. Every time a well gets approved, there's a restoration fund that gets put off to the side. But they haven't been using that money. You know that that attitude has to change, and it it is changing. Uh, the engagement process is becoming more real. The real work now is to recover the habitat, re- reestablish habitat. I think the world's a better place if we have caribou. I don't want to just see a caribou on the quarter. I want to actually be able to see a caribou in, in the wild living its life. Through my conversation with Chief Roland Wilson and Clayton Lamb, I learned some insightful information on mountain caribou and their importance to Indigenous people. Caribou are an important animal to many Indigenous communities not just the West Moberly First Nation and Soto First Nations. Caribou provide food, clothing, medicine, and tools. Due to their endangerment, there are hunting restrictions for many Indigenous communities around local caribou harvest. This presents a strain on Indigenous ways of life, as well as an infringement on Indigenous treaty rights. Through an Indigenous-led conservation effort by the communities within West Moberly First Nation and Soto First Nation, 
the Klinzysaw caribou herd has seen effective conservation and recovery. These efforts are maintained by two programs. The first is predator reduction, the trapping of predators, and the second is a maternal pen, the protection of indigenous caribou and later their youngling to ensure their survival. These efforts will continue into the future until the Klinzysaw population sees consistent growth and indigenous harvests can rightfully take place without putting the population at risk. That's it for this edition of the Canadian Mountain Podcast in partnership with the Community Podcast Initiative at Mount Royal University. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Patton, and thanks to show producer Noelle Ormita. And thank you to Kyle Napier and Meg Wilcox for guidance. The Canadian Mountain Podcast is produced from Treaty 7 with the goal of bringing together Indigenous knowledges with settler research and sciences through this shared platform. We are committed to collaborating with Indigenous peoples in respect to their contributions of Indigenous voices and knowledge holders. We are actively learning to decolonize our production practices through this series and encourage other media professionals and organizations to decolonize their practices as well. Be sure to join us again for more stories surrounding mountain places whether that be in your own backyard or from around the country. Share and subscribe to get the latest updates on the new season, and be sure to tell your mountain-loving friends and colleagues. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can learn more about the Canadian Mountain Network at canadianmountainnetwork.ca.